live your life, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now, your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you, Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for Yeah, rear naked choke of Cocker Spaniel, bro. You know what I'm saying? Change the neighborhood up. Conspiracy Farm. Go. Check it out. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen, locked in and loaded for another episode of The Conspiracy Farm. We appreciate your patience, ladies and gentlemen. We took kind of a little bit of a break. I did anyway, because my brain just wasn't quite working right. The world's on fire, and I was just trying to get my thoughts together. And we have scored an absolutely incredible guest today. Um, so, so very excited, even a little nervous. Uh, but before we get started, ladies and gentlemen, support the farm, support the sponsors, theconspiracyfarm.com. If you're not a fan of the interweb, you can go, and if you happen to have Dish Channel, Dish Network, go to Dish Community, search for The Conspiracy Farm, and you can find our very, very extremely handsome mugs there. But without further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, my sidekick, who I roll with all the time, UFC Hall of Famer Pat Militich. How are we doing this evening, champion? You know, I'm doing wonderful, Jeff. And when I looked at my just, – we're just going to talk real quick. Uh, when I looked at my Twitter account and noticed that our guest suddenly was following me on Twitter, I said, that can't be the real, the real man himself. Mm-hmm. And so I sent a message and said, is this the real um, person? And I got a response back, yes. And I said, holy cow, um, what (laughs) can I do to get you on my podcast? We've got a pretty substantial listenership. And it was just, you know, email, email my assistant. So that's that's where that picked up at. And my my story, you know, as as our listeners know, started at five or six years old in 1971, 72, right in there. Flaps happened. The farmers were all. Uh, rushing the banks, and, and I was standing in line at 4 or 5 a.m. with my grandma and my mom in Albia, Iowa at the Farmers National Bank after Nixon took us off the gold standard, and my brain was opened up to the world that, uh, well, it, it just happened. And I was the kid that was paying attention on the living room floor, watching Walter Cronkite and starting to starting to try and figure things out. But when I read this man's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, that's when it all came together for me. And I want to thank this man for for literally educating me and millions of people. I wish every high schooler in America had to read this book. I'd love love for that to be the case because we would not be in the predicament we are in today if they did. So go ahead, Jeff. You can introduce. Well, me. and I this this gentleman could easily been wasting not wasting spending the several months taking victory laps after victory lap because he is his, his analysis has been so prescient from so far back in the day he is the author like you said champ of creature from jekyll island as well as a world without cancer um an incredible documentary the capitalist conspiracy among many other things his contribution has been very substantial and significant g edward griffin is joining us today how are you sir well i'm very well, thank you. And my ego is all puffed out listening to that introduction. <laughs> thank you. You're very kind. As it should as, be. As it should be. As it should be. <laughs> well, we're going to, there, there's so much to unpackage here. And I know we don't have so much time because we could easily just spend forever talking about, you know, the tre- creature from Jekyll Island, your analysis. But I, wa- I want to kind of have a story arc here because, again, your analysis has been so prescient. Some of the interviews you've had with individuals like Yuri Bezmanov and you transpose that to where we are today, it just makes your analysis even more prescient, sir. You're doing good, though, right? Hanging out there and uh, enjoying life? Uh, well, yeah, doing both of the above. Enjoying there life we a go. lot when I stop and think about all the good things that we still have, and we better be sure to do that because when you look at that blue sky and those uh, 
those white clouds, not the chemtrails, but the real white clouds that go <laughs> drifting by. And you think, oh, it's it's a great it's a great planet to be on. And then you think about all those those fruitcakes that are taking over the thing and re reckoning it. And you got okay, enough of the nature. Let's get back to work and see if we can't recapture the system. Yeah, and yeah. I think that is very important in these times, man. Is like I said, we literally took about two weeks off. You know, it's just it's a, doing this kind of work. It's exhausting. Again, I don't have to tell you, but you know, we we tumbled down that rabbit hole a lot, and it's very kind of draining. So um, I, I definitely, again, appreciate our patience of our farmers. Appreciate you for coming on. You know, and I, and I always like to ask people, especially someone who's gone back as far as you have. When did that bug bite you? Like Pat just said, it, the bug bit him standing in the bank and uh, the lines of the banks in Albion, Iowa, me as a 16, 15 year old kid, the assassination of JFK and realizing what really happened really blew my mind. When was the, when did that happen with you? When did the bug bite you, sir? Well, the, the bug bit me uh, the first time that I remember being bit by it. It was in 1960. That's a long time ago. I was a young guy. I was working for a large insurance company. I had a lot of a lot of uh, corporations in my account portfolio, people who were um, insured with our company. I worked for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States, big long title. I think it's the third largest company in the United States, head, headquartered in New York. So I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was trying to look good, trying to make money, had myself the beautiful wife, had the house in the suburbs. I had the kids, you know, and the dog in the car, had all the things and I wanted more. I really wasn't the kind of a person that I am today. I was just like, I guess, everybody else. I was programmed pretty much by my environment. I had, I was raised, fortunately, by a, a very wise lady. I came from a broken home, but I was fortunate to be taken in by my aunt, who was a school teacher, and she taught me a lot of very good things and good values and. She was an English teacher, so I learned something about English against my will. I didn't really want to study very much. <laughs> anyway, I had I had a, a, a good a break in my life. I got out of a bad environment at probably about the age of, I don't know, 14, 12 to 14, I've forgotten. And from that point forward, I, I really consider myself to be fortunate because I was, I was introduced to uh, a lot of positive and constructive uh, role models. Uh, I, I saw life from a perspective of creativity and kindness and generosity and all that kind of thing, which which stood me, I, I suppose, in good stead because later I, I got into this corporate ladder business. And, um, and then one day I ran into some uh, some information about the United Nations of all things. And of course, at that in, remember in 1960, I had come out of the University of Michigan. I was totally indoctrinated, like everybody else, that the United Nations was our last best hope for peace, you know? And uh, they do so much good. They were inoculating all these poor children in Africa, preventing them from having these dread diseases, I thought. <laughs> oh, boy, did I, was I wrong on that? But anyway, I thought it was so good. And so when I saw this adverse information about the UN, I thought, oh, that's poppycock. And, but it aroused my curiosity and, one day I had some spare time downtown Los Angeles. There's a big, beautiful library down there. And for the first time since uh, leaving the university, I voluntarily walked into a library. I thought that was weird because in school, I thought, you know, reading books was something you did for penance, uh, for doing something <laughs> wrong when you were a bad boy. And I never wanted to read a book again. But anyway, this was the beginning. Now you talk about the bite. So I got hold of this little book and it, it, um, 
and with this little pamphlet, somebody gave it to me, and it, it challenged the popular view of the UN. So I went to the library to, to debunk it. It was not typical for me to do that, but I, I did. When I got to the library, I found I got all these books about the United Nations, and I thought it was strange that they were all written by people who were either on the payroll of the UN or the United Nations Association or the State Department. All of these people seemed to have the same point of view, which even then I realized was not really central, central focused on American principles or American goals. It was like internationalism, which sounded good to me, internationalism, what's wrong with that, you know? But I did <laughs> sense that there was something about it, and I thought it was weird that, uh, that it, there was nothing critical about the UN then, because I was expecting to see some data about this information that I had run across. Anyway, I, I'm taking too long. I, I began to do some independent research just out of curiosity. And it didn't take very long, gentlemen, as you probably can guess, before I realized that there was a lot of valid and scholarly information available, but it wasn't in the library. It was outside of the official uh, sources of information. It wasn't in the school textbooks. It wasn't in the newspapers. It wasn't on television, but it was there. It was there if you wanted to go to the back rooms of the library and go through the microfilm and do your own really hard research. You could find that the criticisms of the UN that I was reading were, were valid. And that, that struck me very hard. And I didn't realize it, but at that time, I, I discovered I had what you might call a crusader gene. <laughs> mm. I, I never really thought much about anything beyond myself and my immediate family and, you know, what's going on here. And all of a sudden I found myself thinking, what's going to happen to the future of the country? What about the future of the world? I mean, if these things are true, we're being lied to and we're going down the wrong path. And all these dreams I had in my mind about living the life, you know, being a vice president for a large corporation or something, having a limousine, looking good, having lots of money, all of that was not going to happen. And even if it did happen, it would be accompanied by so much garbage and pain and suffering. And I found myself actually being concerned about things outside myself. Okay, to make a long story short, that was my first bite. Uh, that's my first, when the bug bit me, to take an interest in something outside of myself. And from that point forward, it was all downhill. I mean, <laughs> I just kept finding new material and new areas in which I was being fooled. <clears throat> so finally, to bring the story to a close, I quit my job. And, and can you imagine, here I'm, I'm doing pretty well in the corporation for a young guy. I had it figured out that, in fact, I stalked the company. I, I realized that all the top executives were really old guys. I mean, they were getting ready to retire. And I looked at the middle management. There weren't too many people in the middle management that were young. And they were all old, too. And they had to go all the way down to the bottom be before you found the young guys. I thought, well, that's me. So I get in there and do a good job. And then it wouldn't be long before all these old guys retire. And there'd be a vacuum and whoosh. Even if you're not doing too good, you got to move to the top. I had this all figured out. Well, anyway, all of that was behind me. It didn't make any difference. I gave it up. I quit my job. And uh, my poor wife, she almost had kittens. I mean, she said, what are you doing? How are we going to pay for the, you know, da-da-da. But she was a good woman. She stuck with me, and she saw my, my vision. And uh, so I went into business. I got into the patriot movement. I started producing little low-budget documentary films. And then I formed uh, 
uh, Freedom Force International. Then I formed a Red Pill Expo and Red Pill University and, and you know, earned a lot of notoriety along the way. <laughs> and here I am. That's it. That's incredible. You know, the, that, that's thing. something, you know, your book, is, as I mentioned again, The Creature from Jekyll Island, after reading that book, opened up my mind so much to understanding monetary systems, monetary policy, that, that foreigners were in control of our politicians, therefore in control of our policies of our nation. It was just a slow grind that they were, that they were um, imposing upon us. And, you know, I even had the honor to speak, to introduce Rand Paul at one of his, in 2016, at one of his presidential stops here in Iowa. And, you know, that's something that I talked about because obviously Ron and Rand Paul are very strong about getting rid of the Federal Reserve. And I talked about that. And there were so many young college students in that crowd also, but they all just looked at each other confused, like, wow, we didn't even, we, we had no clue. So, you know, the, the army of people that you have, have educated are able to go out and, you know, hopefully duplicate you and, and spread the word more and more. So, so you're, you're the snowball that started, you know, all of it. And you have to be, you know, I, I'm very thankful that, that, uh, that you've done what you have. Well, thank well, and you. Just for people who may not know completely the full context of the Federal Reserve, you know, Federal right. Reserve Act was what's passed in 1913, uh, which pretty much gave, you know, pretty much power of our, our financial system, which technically constitutionally is supposed to be only the Congress is has the power of uh, printing money and determining the value thereof. But now you enter in 1913, this Federal Reserve, which isn't even federal, it's foreign banks that are now in control of our financial system. Well, yeah, there's so many uh, red pills to be taken in this story. Uh, it, you just not, don't know where to begin. Yeah, You're quite exactly. right. The Constitution of the United States, if anybody cares <laughs> anymore, it makes it very clear that uh, Congress uh, has the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. But it's also very clear <clears throat> that what it cannot do, it cannot base the money on uh, credit and loans, you know. It has to be based on species, gold coins or silver coins. That's all in the Constitution, believe it or not. Well, who, who reads the Constitution? We know Congress doesn't. We know the Senate doesn't. And <laughs> heck, we know the Supreme Court doesn't. So uh, this issue of obvious unconstitutionality uh, it has never been challenged because nobody wants to challenge it. There's, there's no way you could defend it, so they won't challenge it. So not only did we did we give away, or say we, not only did the nation, why, not only did Congress give away and sovereign right to, to issue the nation's money. They gave it away to the private banking cartel, which is what the Federal Reserve System is. It is sure. a cartel. So they gave that to a private cartel, but not only that, they, they let the cartel do that which they themselves could not do. Congress cannot issue money based on loans or debt or credit, but they gave the power to the Federal Reserve, and then they are issuing uh, money based on loans and credit. So uh, it's, it's a double whammy, and no matter how you look at it, it's totally uh, fraudulent, and it leads to more than fraud. It leads to legalized plunder of the American people. You know, and that, Without and that book, a doubt. That book ahead. also, sorry, Jeff, that, that book also prompted me to start writing a book years back, and I had contacted you once, and I, I think I was too... I think I was too nervous about even talking to you about it, but <laughs> I had I had started a book based on special forces, a contracting company similar to Blackwater, um, to where they were taking tier one operators, time travel, and the history of banking, 
and send these guys back in time to change the path that we are currently on. And I had the whole thing almost completely done. I didn't have the ending of the book written and my iPad completely crashed and I lost the whole thing. So I just, I went, <laughs> Oh my goodness. And this thing, Oh, but, but it could be a hell of a movie. I know it could be a hell of a movie and I'd love, I'd love to have <laughs> you in that. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great if we could do time travel and go back and do some things right. Yeah, right. That we're not done right. Yeah, and let's talk about let's talk about that train trip in 1910 down to Jekyll Island uh, from up in the Northeast. Just just briefly go over that and and who was assembled and who was there to write the Federal Reserve Act and and uh, then how it got passed um, when when most most politicians in D.C. were home with their families for Christmas break. Mm. Well, the the train trip was in two thousand. I mean, nineteen ten. Yes. And the the passing of the Federal Reserve Act was in uh, nineteen uh, thirteen. Yes. Sir. So the tr- the train trip wasn't at Christmas. Well, actually, it was uh, as I recall, it was near Thanksgiving. It was in November, and uh, of course, there was nothing going on in Congress about the Federal Reserve at that time. But here's what happened: um, the banks. Um, in the United States, prior to the Federal Reserve, were pretty much independent of each other in terms of state laws. The, the overriding rules and regulations for all the banks, the highest level of political authority was individual states. The federal government didn't really have an awful lot to do with banking at that time. Well, what happened is that the all, almost all, I'll say almost because that's always safer, but I can't think of any exceptions. So probably all of the banking systems of all of the states uh, really practiced what you might call unethical banking. By that, I mean that they would issue loans based on more money than they had on deposit. And especially since when they took money on deposit, from individuals like you and I want to say, well, we got some extra money. We want to put it in the bank where it's safe. And maybe you can pay us a little bit of interest on it. And, but mm-hmm. it's, we would even go without interest as long as you can guarantee that you can safeguard our money. So nobody steals it from us, put it in the vault. And they would say, yeah. And they would call that a time, not a time deposit, but they would call it a, de- a demand deposit. And that's what we have mostly today. When you go to the bank, if you look at your, the fine print in your, little book that says this is a demand deposit and or at least it used to so the idea was that it was your money it was in the bank it was safely there and you could demand it anytime you wanted to no questions well that was fine until too many people demanded it at the same time and when Mm. more than about seven or eight percent of all the depositors wanted their money at the same time then all of a sudden the scam was exposed because the money wasn't there the money was being put out, was loaned and so forth, which is okay. I mean, nothing is wrong with taking somebody's money and investing it for mutual profit as long as they know that's what you're doing. Now, if you tell them, no, it's on safe deposit and you can take it anytime you want to, and then you do that without telling them this is a problem. And that's what happened in all of the states. The the people suddenly got wind of the fact that there wasn't enough money in the vaults to uh, satisfy their deposits if they wanted them. So they started to withdraw their money. Well, after the first five or 6% did that, then there were big long lines outside the bank because the bank, Hmm. first of all, slowed down the process. They'd say, okay, uh, to the tellers, they'd all slow down, you know, check records, go look at things. We got a little money left, we'll meter it out, but don't, don't rush, you know? 
And so the lawns were, lines were very, very, very long. And then finally they ran out of money completely and they had to close their doors. Now this is what they call the, you know, that's when the bank holiday comes along and FDR announced the bank holiday, the closing of all the banks. And it was to protect the banks because they were bankrupt. They could not meet their deposit demands. A lot of banks went out of business. People lost their savings completely. And it was a terrible mess. And so there was a demand on the part of the American people for banking reform. They wanted their congressmen to pass legislation that would prevent that kind of shenanigans from happening again. They wanted to know that their banks were secure and that they were really uh, you know, reputable and honest institutions and they weren't gonna steal their money. And so it was a win. We're gonna have legislation and we're gonna control those big bad banks. So what happened? Do you suppose the banks sat around and said, gosh, fellas, uh, looks like they're gonna pass a law and put us into a straitjacket so we can't do all of our tricks anymore. What are we gonna do about this? Are we gonna sit here and wait and see what happens? No, these fellas are too smart for that. They said, I'll tell you what, we'll go get at the head of the parade. If they want banking reform, good. We'll be the champions of banking reform. We'll get at the head of the parade and we will demand banking reform. And we will write the bill to reform banking so it suits our purposes. But we right. mustn't tell anybody that we wrote the bill. And that's why the secret <laughs> meeting took place on Jekyll Island, away from Washington, D.C. So that train trip that you're talking about represented the six the leaders of the six major banking consortia in the United States. And as you mentioned, some of them had strong connections with overseas banks, particularly the, uh, the Warburg banks and the Rothschild banks, sure. and, which is a big conglomerate, of course. You've got yes. practically the whole world there. Of course, then on the, on the U.S. side, you had the, you know, the Rockefellers and the Morgans and so forth. So these were the big banking interests in the world and especially in the United States. And they sent their emissaries on this train trip, this, the private car of uh, Senator Nelson Aldridge. He was the chairman of the committee that was going to draft this legislation. And so he's at sort of the ringleader of rounding up the bankers. And they went to this secret meeting on Jekyll Island told nobody knew that where they were going. They lied about it. If anybody questioned them, they said, no, we just went on a duck hunting trip or something like that. And for a long time, they denied that the meeting even took place. But the point is it did take place and it, they were there for a week. And the records now are very clear. I got a lot of records from the uh, museum there at Jekyll Island itself. And of course, after the Federal Reserve was created, uh, most of these guys uh, opened up and they admitted, yes, well, of course we went, but we had we couldn't tell anybody what we were doing for obvious reasons. And they bragged about it and they gave interviews to newspaper reporters and several, several of them wrote books. And many of them had their biographers later write about this period of history. So you go to all of these sources, which are in the public domain, but you're not going to find them in the textbooks, you know. But if you go hmm. to these public sources and draw all this information together, you get a clear picture of the fact that these guys went in there and they wrote their own reform bill and it turned out to be a cartel agreement. It was the guys said, look, we're not going to compete anymore. We're going to cooperate. We're going to regulate our industry and we're going to control the competition. We'll make sure no newcomers come in. We, we want to dominate the market and we'll, we'll make it look like we're being regulated by Congress. But in fact, we will regulate Congress. That is how it all turned out. So they drafted the bill, they took it to Washington, D.C., and instead of writing at the top of it the Federal Reserve 
uh, rather, instead of writing cartel agreement, they wrote Federal Reserve Act. <laughs> right. And that's how it all came to be. And that's the story wow. behind Jekyll Island. Well, and it's it's interesting because I say all the time on this show, um, everything we're seeing is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the WWE, sir. Uh, or WWF, professional wrestling, basically. It's all wrestling. You know what I mean? You have the CEO of this company, Vince McMahon, that pays a Hulk Hogan and then an Andre the Giant to fight to create this false drama, and then we all lose our mind. And then you extrapolate that to a larger geopolitical application. That's exactly what's happening. You have Talk, talk to me about uh, individuals like Colonel Edward Mandel House, who, who basically picked the first governors of, um, of the, the Federal Reserve Board and even wrote a book um, what was it called? Uh, Philip Drew, administrator. Where it's a fictionalized novel, but he writes about a small group of insiders creating financial crisis to weaken the country, to create civil war. That's kind of fast forward to where we are now. But you look at things like 1907, Trotsky was financed by British banks, and then Lord Alfred Milner in 1917 through his financial organizations helped fund the Bolshevik Revolution. That's something we don't quite get. We all are here fighting over right, left, etc. While there's this architecture up top that is controlling everything. Yeah, that's that's the biggest red pill to swallow of all, because we like to choose up sides and we certainly don't like to think that our choices are not choices at all. <laughs> but uh, as you just you made that wonderful analogy to wrestling matches, I remember my grandmother uh, when we first had television uh, at least once a week and she'd be watching the professional wrestling in the afternoon. She'd get all excited. She'd look out behind you. You know, there was usually some <laughs> with some guy. <laughs> <laughs> there was some guy that was dressed with the American flag, you know, on his cape or something. And the other guy had a, was all unshaven and snarly and a swastika on his arm, you know, tattoos. He was ugly. Well, who are you going to cheer for, you know? My grandmother was really yeah. with the, the patriotic guy. She, and that Nazi, she just, she hated him. And, and what she didn't realize and what I didn't realize at the time was that these guys probably worked for the same manager, same corporation, and they were hired on the basis of them being able to put on a pretty convincing fight. The fight has to look good or the people don't come and sit and watch it. And right. you transfer that analogy to politics, you've got a perfect analogy of what goes on between the left and the right and between the good guys and the bad guys, no matter how you, which side you're on, that's what's going on. They're both controlled by the same wrestling managers. Yes. Well, when you look at... You look at just below the, you know, the global bankers, you know, you've, now you've got uh, Henry Kissinger and George Soros working the left and the right, you know, and, and just basically conducting this whole, this whole scam. And, you know, we've had guests on here. We just had a financial guy on not that long ago where he witnessed um, D'Amato and I forget the Irish, the Irishman's uh, last Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Yeah, Moynihan and D'Amato. Uh, where they were Democrat and Republican, and in 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 the press, they they hated each other. They were both criminals. They they accused each other of all kinds of of high crimes and and treason. And but they were actually very close, very close friends. Uh, they golfed together. You know, they 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 loved. They gave graduation presents to each other's kids. You know, they were they were very close friends. And that's what's going on in Washington D.C. Uh, currently. I mean, most of those folks are absolutely very good friends because they're all criminals right now. Well, yeah, and it's a it's a fact of life, and I think people understand it. That for a long time, uh, the voters don't vote for a candidate; they vote against a candidate. 
They don't like any of them, yeah. but they usually say, well, this is the lesser of two evils. And I don't like him yeah. for this reason or reason, but that guy I hate, I hate. And so hatred is a very important part of the political scene. And we look at what's going on today. I don't think whoever it is your good guy is, whoever you think is the good guy in the scenario today, it's because you hate the other side or fear the other side. And believe me, if, if we didn't have that, if we didn't have all these nasties in the street throwing fire into buildings, burning buildings down, beating up people, that looking so ugly like the, like the wrestler I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> if, if we didn't have that, I can tell you the guy in the White House wouldn't look like anything. It's who he's, who's fighting against him makes him look good. And of course, if you're on the other side, they try and make the, the president look really bad and hateful, and the people who you know, are on this side hate him so much. So that's, this is the formula. And until you see that formula and get your own convictions, I mean, we've all come through the, through the years thinking we had really good guys, and maybe mm -hmm. there were a few along the way, but they were precious few. Precious few. I think <laughs> I, I'm half joking when I say the last good president we had was Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I'm half joking. <laughs> and well, sometimes Jackson, I wonder even about him. <laughs> wasn't it? Wasn't it? Uh, was it? Jackson was the last one to kill the central bank before the Federal Reserve. Correct. Yes. Yes. And so you say, well, he's a good guy, right? Because he, he killed the central bank, and you have to salute him for that. But he's also the one that turned the presidency into imperial and an imperial office. Until right. that time, the president served the Senate. And then after that battle, the president was like the king, and it hasn't changed since then. People don't realize that historically the president was supposed to be just an executive who carried out the orders of the Congress and the Senate. And right, he, yeah. he wasn't elected by the people. He was elected by the Senate. And he was working for the people that we vote for. And the idea, they didn't want everybody to vote for the president because we didn't want him to be a king, be a popular king. We got rid of kings. Well, all the people that remembered the kings are dead by that time. And so they changed it. And Jackson had more to do with that than mm. anything. So as, as I say, it's hard to find a really good guy when, from top to bottom, when you go back and look at history. Yeah. So now, as we as we move forward into what we've seen, well, and, and you, you look know, at things that are going. Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. Can I? Uh, I was just going to say, w the minute they they impose this lockdown for this pandemic, we call it on on America and on the world. The minute that happened, Jeffrey and I both said, "This is not about. This is not about a pandemic. This is about a financial collapse." Because we had been following global banking stocks for quite some time and had been saying that the, the collapse was most likely going to happen in the spring of 2020, given, I mean, just watching a few global banking stocks that were absolutely tanking for a year and a half before this all went down. And so, you know, you obviously sat back and, and watched this all happen and, and well aware of why this is going on. So, so they use this as we've, we've said a camouflage jacket over a financial collapse so that politicians and global bankers don't get drugged into the streets and hung. Yeah, that's a very important analysis. I think it's certainly true. Uh, the uh, the pandemic, as you call it, I call it the, uh, the pandemic theater, um, hmm. has has other purposes and, uh, you know, advantages to these people as well. First of all, they, they condition people to be very subservient. You know, there's an old saying, a drowning man is not interested in reading the Constitution. So when you when you get the population uh, panicky over their survival, whether it's from terrorism 
or destruction of the environment or a, a flu bug uh, or whatever it is. And they're convinced that life is at stake and their future of their children, their grandchildren. They don't care whether what you're talking about is constitutional or not. They want you to save their lives, you see. Right. And this is the other trick we have to keep our eye on. I'm convinced that most, if not all, of these fearful things that we've been conditioned to uh, to give up our liberties in order to avoid have been planned, and they are theater for that very reason. Yes. Not that there isn't some reality to it. I mean, yeah. look at the present reality. They're trying, been trying for years to create real race war in America. They yes. want to create it. Yeah. And it looks like they're, you know, they're fueling the fire. And I can, oh, I'm in, it's just in dread. There'll be some some violence that takes place because there'll be some redneck who gets fed up with all this and they'll go in, they'll, sh they'll perform some kind of a real atrocity against some black people. The black people will say, yeah, I guess there is racism. And then we'll have race war. That's what they really want. So they can finally bring in the soldiers and we got martial law and that's the end of the game. Yes. Because yes. once we get that, it will not go away. Well, and that's that's honestly, in my opinion, obviously through your analysis and others, that is kind of the end game. But kind of going back to something that's been plaguing a lot of us since 2016 is this notion. I'm not a Trump guy myself. I don't, I don't care who is or who isn't. But this notion, he, he's played it well that he's the good cop. And specifically recently, as it relates to the Federal Reserve. Everyone, uh, the, the the word came out that Trump's now the head of the Federal Reserve, even though he's going through this intermediary, this company called BlackRock, which is just Wall Street up and down. You know, his his Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is skull and bones. You know, his dad was Goldman Sachs. Talk to us if you don't mind a little bit on how you know this this narrative of of creating this narrative of this white hat and people kind of falling for it when nothing he seems to be doing. He got some symbolic stuff going on, but he he's making he makes Bernie Sanders look like Barry Goldwater with some of you know the, we're never going to be a socialist country, but then he gives the banks and corporations trillions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then often I'll say, "Gee, I shouldn't have done that. I don't think I'm going to do that again." <laughs> it slays me how people will fall for the same trick over and over again. I think I'm not a tennis player, but I understand that uh, a, a tennis player that really has a good serve is really king, and and. You, if you're up against a, prof a professional tennis player that has a good serve, you better figure out what his serve is and practice uh, returning it, you know? But, and I, so I look at the politics and I think they use the same serve on us year after year after year. Yes. And it's always the same curveball, you know? And that's why and it's so say, Oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so the, the, the serve here is that they, they always say the right things in the, at the, during the campaign. I mean, they say, yes. look, they spend a lot of time and money with polls to find out what it is the American people want to hear. Yes. Why do they do that? Because then they can have their speechwriters say, help me say what the American people want to hear. They don't care what they want to hear. They just have to tell them that so they can get elected. After they're elected, it's all over. So you look back over the years and you see all the presidents starting, well, maybe before this, but certainly remember FDR. I've seen some of his newsreels where he's saying, I hate war. Eleanor hates war. Um, what was the dog? Uh, not. Um, I mean, anyway, I've forgotten the dog's name. Little Scotty. He hates war. You know. He's and he said, "I promise you, when I'm elected, uh, our boys will not get into war." 
Well, at the very time he was giving that speech, he was working out plans to get us into war so we can be involved in international affairs and begin to create this global government that he thought, and all the others of the same ilk, thought was a great idea. So they lie about war. And then, of course, how many presidents do we have in our memory? They've all campaigned on putting an end to the war. Every one of them, I don't care whether Republicans or Democrats, but which one has actually done that? They've all done just the opposite. After yeah. they go in, there's more budget for war. There are more troops overseas. There are more, there's more aggressive action and so forth. So it's the same serve over and over, <laughs> over and over. Why don't we see it? That's what frustrates the heck out of me. Why don't we see it? It's been right. played and out. The, go ahead, Pat. I'm sorry. Twist. We've got, unfortunately, where... You know, we've also switched over to the proxy armies and all of that for for many years now. But now we see proxy armies being funded in our own country. The, the people that are doing this are being funded, you know, by the George Soros Open Society Foundation and other other groups that are paying these people to do this stuff. These these organizers to right. bring, uh, you know, and organize all these lemmings into this this uh, crazy, um, you know, these riots and stuff. And you see. You know, Antifa hijacking the Black Lives Matter movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, when you go to that site to donate money and then you track it, um, Live Blue or Blue, I forget the name of it. But you go to that and where their expenditures are on that that part, it goes to Bernie Sanders. It goes to all these different politicians when you donate to Black Lives Matter. And it's yeah. just it's, it's it's pure insanity that Americans aren't seeing this. And there, here's here's a really important thing that I want to say that I think might be an important thing to bring up to everyone, um, not just blacks around this country, uh, any minority, and even the white, and even the white uh, majority in this country, that we need to ask the question is, why are there so few black-owned banks in America? And once you can get them to talk about that, once you get them thinking about that, and, and Latinos and other Americans, why, why are we not part of this why, are, why can't I be part of that group? Why can't I own a bank? Why can't I get my friends together and open a bank? Then once they start questioning that, then they're ready mentally to absorb the fact that the global bankers are, are the ones that are causing the true oppression and funding what's happening around this country. Well, and it's and before you answer, sir, just this goes back to kind of what we were talking about of these international banking conglomerates funding, whether it's the Bolshevik Bolshevik Revolution, Hitler, Mao, to create this this uh, this seemingly what uh, controlled opposition. And this goes to something you mentioned before in some of your analysis: pressure from above and pressure from below, which creates. Uh, what we're, we're we're kind of seeing now. It's that Hegelian dialectic, creating the chaos, bringing in the solution to the chaos that you provided, while people in the middle, Black Lives Matter, even though you know some of the things we've seen is absolutely egregious, but they don't right. realize they're being utilized and being exploited. You go back yeah. to the Bolshevik Revolution, all these people who thought they were doing, you know, part of this next evolution, when they were done with them, they were done with them. And, you know, what we're going to talk here about Yuri Bezmenov and that conversation, the four stages of ideological subversion. But go ahead, sir. Well, yeah, you've said it so well. Uh, uh, I'd like to promote something that I just put up on the Internet a few days ago. Let me give you a little background on that. I, I'm sorry, I have to always rewind a little bit before I can answer your question. Uh, about a week sure. ago, I got a phone call from somebody who said, uh, yeah, Mr. G, we just saw one of your old videos is uh, going viral on the Internet. I said, oh, really? Which one? And they said, well, it has something to do with communist revolution. I, what? what? Oh, I'll, I remember that one. It was probably called More Deadly Than War, the communist revolution in America. They, yeah, that was it. 
So I said, that's making the, the rounds? Yeah. So I looked, and sure enough, somebody had um, taken one of our VHS copies that we made years and years ago, and they'd made a really bad transfer of it. It was really hard to look at. But this is what was going around. I said, oh, my gosh. And I'd forgotten about it. I looked at it, at the video. I watched the whole thing through. I thought, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. I did a lot of research on it. This is exactly what's going on today. It's the implementation. <laughs> so I went, I got, I found my one-inch master tape. I took it into Hollywood a few days ago. I had them remaster it. It's all pristine. I put it up on the internet. And now there's a good quality up, up there. And the reason I mention it is because I would like to urge all of your listeners to go to redpilluniversity.org. And that'll be very high to the top. We're putting new videos in all the time. But very close to the top. Look for it. It's called... Communist Revolution in America, More Deadly Than War. I switched the titles around a little bit. And the reason I mention it is because that's where, among other things, I talk about that pincers movement, pressure from above and pressure from below. They have their agents in government and their agents in mass action organizations. They put the, they put the organizations into the street and they have violence and a lot of firebombing and threats and it scares the dickens out of everybody. They don't realize yes. that... You know, a couple of thousand people looks like a lot. Could be five thousand, you know. But that's all. They're all there. They get bust in. <laughs> Most of them, the right. organizers at leader, all bust in. And as you pointed out, they're on the payroll. It wouldn't happen without this organizational force behind it. So they get these people demanding something, and then their agency and government say, "Well, we just have to do what the people want," and they start pr proposing legislation. And then the, everybody in the middle, which is 99% of the population, says, oh, my gosh, I guess we're surrounded. I thought, I, I must be crazy. Look, everybody wants this. The people in the street, the politicians up above, and so they are passive. They say, well, I guess we have to do it because the majority wants it. And that's just one of the strategies that's in that video. And the rest is what you're talking about is that these people that are being used uh, it's been carefully strategized. Every nation is examined to see what is the weak point. What yes. division can you find within a nation if you want to take it over and divide those people against each other? In America, the, the best thing they came up with was race. In other countries, they find religion. In other countries, they find ethnic origins or something, you know. Uh, and But the, whatever it is, they analyze it, and then that's the wedge they tie, try and drive into people so that they can create the semblance of civil war on that issue. And boy, there it was laid out. And I've quoted all the communist literature, the, the training manuals and everything else that explain that. Once people see that and realize that this was strategized, and I did that video in, are you ready for this? 1969. Oh, 1969. Wow. So uh, it, it was all done. Of course, I'm drawing from documents that go back to 1930 and 1929, these, these communist documents from around the world that lay out this strategy. And once you see it and you look at what's yeah. happening in, in the America today, you think, oh, my God, I see it all. You, I mean, even if you go on, I mean, I, you know, prepping for this, I went on and, you know, I kind of was somewhat aware of it, but the Russian revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, you did see the telltale signs of the same things we're going through right now. Almost uh, like Yuri said, none of these protests, nothing is ever organic. But like you said, it's in particular reasons they'll use race, but in the Bolshevik revolutions, they just use people who were just out of money, out of food, just basically. Well, it was clash. Exploiting it, it was the, clash. The, yes. The clash yes. 
Yes, just exploiting the, the the feelings of the disenfranchised, and you know, you know, police and military were turning on you know the the Romanovs and creating this conglomerate or creating this force that the Bolsheviks just kind of rolled into. But you know, like again, people just didn't know that this was being fomented and funded from outside. And you know, you look at you look at what's going on now, and I, I know we don't have you for too much longer, so I really wanted to ask you about Yuri Bezmenov because you look at that interview, and I implore everyone to go look at and watch that full interview. It's it's beyond mind blowing because you're almost watching somebody. He could literally be talking like it's 2020 right now, and the the four stages he spoke about about uh, ideological subversion, demoralization, destabilization, crisis, normalization. I mean. <laughs> We could see all of that happening right now in your analysis, right. seeing, I mean, because you were even saying in that conversation with him and even in the capitalist conspiracy, like we're, the time is running out. And this was in the 80s. Where do you see in this uh, four stage attack where we are right now? I mean, yeah. What are your thoughts? Where are we at in this four stages? Well, I, I think that's pretty easy. And it, it's not much controversy about it. If you're really objective and see what's happening and you know what the formula is, you can say, oh, yeah, we're at least at the midpoint. Of, of the crisis at the midpoint, at least the midpoint, maybe past the midpoint a little bit. When it's he was right saying, I don't mean to interrupt you, with the demoralization, he was saying it takes almost 10 to 15 years just to demoralize a nation and to yeah. return and to, re and to reverse that is another 10 to 15 years. So, I mean, right. again, pe getting people to realize it's chestnut checkers. And this is a, you know, we had Rosa Corian talking about the UN and uh, Agenda 21. This is something they've been planning for decades. Yeah. Yeah, this is a long-term strategy. And uh, it's, it, it was hard for me as a young guy to accept the fact that the solution has to be long-term. I remember when I first caught fire on this, I would talk to the old old guys in the movement and they'd say, well, don't be in a rush. You know, you can't turn this over by the next election. Well, I wanted it done by the next election, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but now that I understand more and I and understand what you're talking about, they have been taking the slow march through the culture and through the educational system and through the religions. I mean, it's a cultural thing. And sure. uh, I, people's ideas have to be slowly changed back cannot happen by the next election. Once you get that idea in your head, then you sort of, it's, it's, it mellows you a little bit. You realize, well, okay, I might not even see, I might not even see a return to what I would like to see in my lifetime, but I'm doing my part now and I'm going to bed with a smile on my face because I'm laying the foundation of what will be a generational reform. Yes. Right. Well, and as your, we look at your, I'm sorry, your knowledge, your knowledge passed on to me has been passed on, you know, to my children. My children are conservative and their classmates because of what they've seen, the millennial generation, many of them imploding with their safe spaces and all this craziness that is that has been programmed into them. The, the generation of kids that are in high school now and some of the kids that are in college now um, are going in there with total different mindsets because of what they've witnessed and what they've seen and because of parenting of, of people who have have read a little bit and researched a little bit and so that's that's a good sign you should feel very good about that also you know my kids my kids and their classmates have debated their teachers nonstop. who their teachers are very liberal of course and on on one occasion uh, one of my daughters and her classmates were debating with one of the teachers the teacher broke down and had to leave the room they destroyed the, the teacher so badly in the debate <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's unusual, isn't it? 
Uh, right. Well, I hate to see anybody break <laughs> down and be destroyed. I'd like to see this be a, an intellectual awakening rather than yes. a confrontation and destruction. Well, but the the teachers the teachers think they have the upper hand on the kids, and they bully them. They bully them into this indoctrination, and the kids are fighting back now. The kids are going, uh-uh, we're not taking this from you. And that's a great thing. That's very encouraging, yeah. 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 Well, and as we, you know, as we see the, you know, cities on fire, we got Chaz going on, you know, eight blocks, square blocks taken over in Seattle. Again, if, if you know, you got a lot of these young kids being weaponized, as we've, we've discussed here. And as I see this playing out, and especially listening to your analysis and just all of this from the, you know, you know, the policemen are being fired. They're being, we're talking about defunding. Um, a lot of them are resigning. And for me, it's like, okay, do you guys think once you get rid of the police, the crime is gone. You know, this is 2020. You have career criminals going on right now. And it literally, sir, I mean, I don't want military on the streets. My co-host, my brother, Pat, we don't want military on the streets. But it baits this question of like, if these governors, if these mayors aren't willing to do this, this again follows the same playbook that these gentlemen, they create the chaos. And if no one does anything about it, then what are we looking at? We're looking at national, federal, possibly UN troops on the ground to create mm -hmm. this police state and martial law that they wanted to create in the first place. Again, well, it's just like we're just falling for it and we're just not aware of the chess game taking place. Well, uh when you say we're falling for it, uh, the, the public has no knowledge of what's going on. They're just witnessing it. But yeah. the mayors and the governors are not falling for it. They're creating it. You see, sure. it's important for us to realize that the reason there is no action is because they want it to get worse. Sure. They want when I was going to ask you about possible federal funding, how that's like the blackmail tool of federal funding to help influence or letting this stuff go. Because it's unprecedented. They're letting it go because they want it to scare the heck out of everybody. To, to the point where they'll say, oh, bring in martial law. Oh, thank you for doing that. So they want us to beg for the very thing that yes. they've got planned. And this is how they do it. Yeah. The Hegelian and I dialectic. have to add something on getting rid yes, of the sir. police force. Uh, the public needs to know that in every communist revolution, whether starting with the Soviet Union and all of the satellite countries around the Soviet Union and that advance of communism that went through Eastern Europe, in every country, during the initial stages of takeover, the police were disbanded. Sure. Okay. What happened next? A new police force was created, usually called the Citizens Committee for Peace or Security. The Citizens Committee, all right? Who were the citizens? All the criminals that were let out of the prison were given yeah. a rifle and a badge. All the psychopaths, all the murderers, all the, the most vicious people they could find, they put them into the Citizens Committee led by the revolutionaries, and they went through the neighborhoods and it was a bloodbath. They had names and addresses. Everybody who opposed the system got slaughtered in their homes by the citizens' committees. Wow. This is what happened. And when the citizens' committees were done with that, it was sort of a mop-up operation, then they were eliminated, of course. Yes. Yes. Now we went to normalcy, normal. Yeah. <laughs> See, and that's what, that again, man, these young kids who are, I mean, pardon my language, full of piss and vinegar out here thinking they're Ralphie Wiggum from The Simpsons and they're out here helping and being part of the solution, having no idea they're being played. None whatsoever. Because even Yuri Bezmanov is like, look, when they're done with you, and I don't know if that's what's going to happen here, they're going to line you up against the wall and they're going to shoot your ass. You know, when they are done, it's just a means to an end type relationship. And people don't realize, they think they're part of the yeah. tip of the sword of this revolution, but literally they're just being exploited and being played. And you can't tell them that though, because I've told them for years that, that that you're serving a purpose right now, but once your purpose is done, you're as disposable as I am. 
who opposed it in the first place. Yeah, well, the, the leaders of this movement refer to those people in the street as useful idiots. Yeah. That's, how, that's the word they use for it, useful yeah. idiots. It's not our word, it's their word. Right. They laugh about it. Yeah. Wow. It's, so much going on. I mean, this is the real 6D chess or whatever people say. I mean, and it's and it's scary, sir. Like literally over the last couple of days, I literally just because I'm a I'm a history guy, but I've been watching stuff from the Bolshevik Revolution and even the old documentaries and they're using the same language. Yeah, they release prisoners from the prisons. And I mean, and that's what we're doing here today. And yeah, then hearing the larger not. And that's what's so scary. Ladies and gentlemen. Just open a history book. This is not a puzzle. Like you were saying earlier, just go to some microfilm. This is hidden in plain sight. You just have to want to to look for it. Everyone's looking for these shortcuts to thinking and these fast food ways of getting their news. It's deep, man. This unpackaging this stuff is very deep, but it without a doubt makes you understand what's going on now. And I just the the stakes are so freaking high right now. And you know, you have Seattle being taken over by these freaking morons. And what's 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 the next shoe to drop? Another city? How long is this going to go until it stopped? But then it's like, what's going to stop it? This national police force that nobody wants, the UN or whatever it is. If you don't mind, prognosticate. I know we have a couple minutes with you. What do you see? What do you see coming from this? As someone who's prognosticated this almost through your research, just from understanding history, where do you see us going in the next six months? 12 months. Obviously, nothing's going to change within an election cycle, but where do you see us going? Are we, are we beyond? Are we too far? Are we too far gone? No, I don't think we're too far gone. If we were too far gone, I'd, I'd probably be booking a flight to Mars or something. <laughs> out of here, if, nice. I, if I could get there. And I'm afraid of heights, too. <laughs> but no, I don't think it's too far gone. But I do think it's so serious that we're not going to get out of this without a serious price. I mean, there's going to be hell to pay. Uh, but maybe this is part of the natural cycle of civilizations that we're here. We're here not to prevent it because I'm not sure we can prevent a lot of calamity. Now, I don't think it's gone too far. It's going to be really bad, but we're here to help rebuild. It's our job, I think, is to lay the foundation for the ideas and the history lessons so that the remnant that survives what's coming ahead will not make the same damn mistakes over again. Fingers crossed. Yeah, and this is, I think, our, our mission. I wish I could say, oh, yeah, we can. We just find somebody to run for president on the Libertarian Party or, or something. I don't know. And, and if we just get the right guy on the white horse, it'll be good. But I know that that's not the answer. So I don't know. I'm not predicting what's going to happen because we, it could go one of two ways. It could go all the way into uh, a system that's going to be so horrible, I, I can't even imagine. I think in general, to, to make it seem the least objectionable, I would describe it this way. I think if we don't stop it, we're heading into a system where it'll be like being Elvis, we'll be in the military, we'll be soldiers in the military. We won't have any privacy, we won't have any property, we won't have any money. We don't, you don't need money in the military. They give you your shelter, your food, your clothing, your weapons, and, and so forth, medical care, education. And if you're up, if you have rank, then you get a house, a very nice house. You don't have to live in the barracks. And if you're an officer and you're especially a, a, a colonel or a general, well, you get a very nice house and a limousine. And if you're at the top of that, you've got people all around you and you've got expense accounts. You don't have to have money. <laughs> you just, because, but the thing is, you have to obey. Once you start being a problem and you step out of line, you, you lose all of that. 
and you are in the brig or you're lined up against the wall and removed. I think this is the kind of thing we're going toward. And I don't know if we'll all wear uniforms, but there'll probably be some way to visualize us at a distance and tell what rank you have. Are you a, a top? Are you a big leader? Are you wearing a big silk hat like they used to? Or are you just wearing the silk clothes with a nice blue tie or something? And, and you've got a bunch of Secret Service men going around listening to their little phones. You know, you can spot people <laughs> nowadays. They got, you know, it's, it's status. Um, the kids, all the young people are, are being convinced that they have to dress down in order to be cool. They don't want to look like they're somebody important. So when somebody shows up in a suit and a tie or a tuxedo or something, it's like a uniform almost, you see. But I think we're heading toward that where it won't be uniforms, but probably be a stripe or star or something visible at a distance you can say, oh, now there's a person I better be really nice to. Or you can <laughs> recognize that that guy over there, he better do what I tell him to do because otherwise I'll get him in trouble. Unfortunately, I think that's where we're going, and that means that there's no room for individuality, no room for human, uh, humanality. I mean, anything that's human, privacy, respect, dignity, none of that. Human or individual, like you said, because the master stroke has been taking the groups and then playing off, playing them off against each other, and the, you know the individualism just falls to the wayside, uh, victim of collectivism. And you know something we talk about all the time, man. We got this show. Hopefully, is creating awareness. You can't change a problem unless you release aware of what's going on. Whether it's what we're seeing is coming is Agenda 21, the Internet of Things, this technocracy that the eugenicists have planned for almost a hundred years. We we have to start. Start waking up. I know a lot of people's hearts are in the right place, but again, this is a chess game, not checkers, and you can't be allowing yourself to get played to create a situation that's worse than the situation we're trying to get away from. Champ, we got to let our man slide here. Do you want? I'm sorry. Do you have any comment to that, sir? Well, I just have one closing comment. I think it's important when you get into these grim, uh, futuristic pictures, is that we have to remember that history has always been written by a few. We don't need everybody. It'll never happen. I mean, most people will never take enough interest to do anything about it. Sure. And that's very discouraging. You think, oh my gosh, we lose because we can't reach everybody. But no, history has always been written by 1% or less of the population. They're the thought leaders. They're the leaders of any revolution. They're the people that make things happen. 1% and the rest will follow. Now around that 1%, there's maybe a 15% who are looking for a leader, but they are activists and they will, they will do the work. If you look at the American Revolution, for example, who led the American Revolution? If you make a list of the names, who signed the Constitution, who signed the Declaration of Independence, who wrote the pamphlets, you'll come up with probably about 100 names, 100 people, no more than that. Maybe 150 people created the American Revolution. But now they needed 15% of patriots around them say, yeah, that's great. Count me in. I will help. And now you had 15% and the other uh, 65% said, gee, I wonder which side is going to win. And whichever side won, that's the, I was always on that side, they'll say. <laughs> so this is the way it goes. So we don't have to be too pessimistic, the fact that our neighbor pushing the lawnmower doesn't understand. Of course, most of them won't. We're looking for that 15% and then within that, the 1% who will really dedicate yes. their lives. And we can make that happen with 1% or less of the population. We're doing our best yeah. to be I the like one percenters. Yes. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Sir, Let's uh, use that as a slogan. We are the 1%. All right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
Because that's true. That's so very true, man. We're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna save them all, but with that small bit that you know we do have, we can do we can do a lot of work. So if you don't mind, before you slide, shout out any social networking where we can find you, websites, track you down, see what you're up to. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'd like anybody wants to get involved in some of these strategies that I'm talking about. The place to start is uh, redpilluniversity.org. Uh, that's where we have all the information, and you have to understand when you get there that there that's the beginning. Now, if, you, if that crusader gene starts to vibrate, if you have one of those, you're going to want to do more than just look at videos. That's not why we're there. We're there to get the information vetted and, and out. But then the next step is to make things happen. And what we are trying to do is create campuses of Red Pill University in every county in the United States and around the world, the similar geographical subdivisions, because we have to build this movement from the ground up to be be aware that that's really where we're going with this movement. And then, of course, that 1% can go into Freedom Force and dedicate their lives to this thing. We're trying to build a counterforce to the, the, the forces we're up against are organized with circles within circles, within rings, within rings. It's a classical strategy of, of organization. And the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States pretty much runs the United States. There's about 4,400 people run the United States. That's a very small group. If we had 4,000 people, really, of course, we'd we'd also have to have the power and the connections that that they have. They're running all the the corporations, they have control of the government agencies and the press and the media and the schools. Right. That makes a big difference. Yeah. We don't want to forget that. Yeah, I can't overlook And that. also they make the money. <laughs> yeah, They I make the money stuff. Sure. Yeah. But uh, the point is, if we had a, a controlled center like that, we could, rec- we have one thing that our enemy does not have, and that's loyalty to principle. They have to buy their loyalty and they have the money to do it. They can get loyalty with money and fear and blackmail. Whereas we don't need any of that. All we need right. is people who want to dedicate their lives to liberty. Yep. They, wish, comes, they wish they had that power. We yeah. <laughs> and it, and it comes down again to looking into your children's eyes and are we willing to let them enter into a, the, the level of slavery that we're talking about that these people are planning for our children? I, for one, am not. I will not, I will not stand by idly by and, and allow this to happen without at least doing my utmost to try and stop it. Second that motion. Well, we're sir, all in the same brotherhood on that one. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I can't thank you enough for your time, sir. This has been absolutely an awesome conversation. And if you don't mind, um, would love to have you back as things kind of pan out and we'll see where we are in a few months and see if some of our, not necessarily predictions, but see if some of our analysis was, uh, was legit and we'll just you know kind of see where we are because i mean i don't mean to be fatalistic about it i just and i always try to find the silver lining because i think all of us are kind of learning more about ourselves learning more about the government and how things can just be taken away immediately but um i I just see a lot of um as we're all seeing you know things you know whether it's police shootings or people taking over cities i just see it being a part of this narrative create the chaos and then bringing to solutions the chaos you created not you obviously but um that the powers that be created so We'll keep our eye open and keep uh, keep up the good fight, Patrick. Of course, always love you, my friend. Mr. G. Edward Griffin, thank you so, so very much. Peace and love, and I wish you absolutely all the best, and uh, hopefully look forward to speaking to you sometime soon down the line. Okay, count me in. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. G. Edward Griffin, ladies and gentlemen. 
Theconspiracyfarm.com. Support the sponsors. Support the farm. Peace and so much love. Thank you. And, of course, there will always be more. <laughs>